Does somebody owe you an apology? Do you owe someone an apology? When was the last time you even heard or spoke a true apology? The closing chapters of the book of Acts recounts Paul's arrest, followed by various speeches to various groups. And along the way, we learn many things about injustice in a fallen world, but we also learn a lot about God's sovereign grace in redeeming the world. Apologies and apologetics introduce God's grace into broken situations. Last week, we looked at the end of Acts chapter 21, in which we read the account of Paul's actual arrest. And in that passage, we saw those five groups of people. First, the ringleaders, that small group, sometimes just one person, who is very effective at using others for their personal gain. And then there's the crowd, the vast majority of people who are those that follow the ringleaders and usually have no idea what is really going on, but there they are. And then we have the authorities who are the people who are supposed to handle the situation, but too often they just try to control the situation and never get to the heart of it. And then there is, of course, the target, the person who is at the center of the controversy and who may, in fact, be completely innocent. And then there is the silent, those who let everyone else speak and act. And either they are silent and then criticize what everyone else says and does, or they're silent, but they truly stand with the one who is appointed to speak the truth in love. The church of Jesus Christ is not a crowd reacting in ignorance to power play ringleaders. We are stirred up by the triune God who already has all the power so that we act as instruments in the Redeemer's hand, working together with God-honoring, Christ-centered, spirit-illuminated wisdom. And so here's the Apostle Paul standing before the ringleaders, the crowd, the authorities, and the silence. What will he say? Before we hear it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord, give us a longing to hear your word, to hear it read, to hear it proclaimed, and to know that it is your word and that you speak to us. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to come now and to bear witness to the reading and proclamation of your word that we would hear it for what it is. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher and know that he is not worthy and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, our setting is that Paul is arrested while an angry mob attempted to beat him to death, and Paul, at the center of this injustice, with everyone else yelling, calmly asks the commander if he may speak to the people. We pick up with the last verse of chapter 21 and then hear his speech. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. 
I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest, and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said. And go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked, this man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. There are two amazing things about Paul's speech right at the start. First, he speaks in Aramaic, which was the language of the crowd of Jews in Jerusalem. Similar to how Italian and Spanish are Latin-based languages, Aramaic is related to Hebrew and other languages that are spoken in the Middle East. The point is that he was fluent in Aramaic. And that's what he spoke in this context. 
He didn't speak Greek or Latin or any of the languages throughout the Roman world. He spoke the language of the people that had gathered there. To the Greek commander, he spoke Greek. But to the Jews in this crowd, he spoke Aramaic. And by using Aramaic, he identified with the crowd and invited the crowd to identify with him. And then, secondly, Paul begins with the words, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. He's speaking to a group of people who moments earlier were pummeling him, wanting him dead. And he calls them fathers and brothers. That is grace. When someone has wronged you, they are still someone, a human being, a bearer of God's image. Even the most evil, terrible, hateful person is still a person. Acknowledging an adversary as a fellow human being, as an image bearer, as a person, a fellow citizen, is an act of grace. You are treating them better than they treated you. You are treating them better than they deserve. And that is grace. Now, if he had begun, look, you bunch of ingrates, you hypocritical jerks, I'm going to tell you a thing or two. Might have made him feel better for the moment, but he would have gotten no traction with that, right? Instead, Paul introducing grace by speaking respectfully to his fellow Jewish fathers and brothers in their language says, listen now to my defense. And that word that's translated defense is where we get our word apology and apologetics. Two words that are exactly the same and completely different. (laughs) In the English language, the word apology originally meant giving a defense, but of course now it means saying, I'm sorry. Ironically, most apologies aren't really apologies at all, but are very defensive, full of self-justification and blame-shifting. Most apologies are not apologies, but further backhanded insults. I'm sorry you didn't understand me, right? Which is to say, I'm sorry you're an idiot who couldn't understand me. I'm sorry you were offended. In other words, I'm sorry you're so sensitive that you were offended, jerk. Or I'm sorry I lied about you to other people, but you deserved it. In other words, not only am I not sorry that I lied about you, but I think it was the right action because I'm right and you're wrong. So here's the thing. Sometimes an apology is absolutely appropriate. A simple admission of guilt. I'm sorry I. Not I'm sorry but, or I'm sorry you, but I'm sorry I did this. It was wrong. I'm asking if you can forgive me. That's a real apology. Marriages could be saved by husbands and wives simply learning how to apologize like that. Friendships could be saved. Jobs could be saved. All with a simple apology, a plain admission of wrongdoing that introduces grace to a broken situation. On the other hand, a good apologetic is sometimes what's needed. A defense without being defensive. Articulating why you did what you did in order to clear up misunderstanding to clear up a false accusation with the goal of reuniting, not just defending yourself, but in order to reunite. So you might say, wow, it sounds like someone told you that I said this, but what I actually said was this. I sure hope that clears up the misunderstanding and that we can be friends again. In Christianity, we speak of apologetics as defending the faith. 
Evangelism means sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so apologetics is a form of evangelism, particularly defending what we believe and why. What Paul does in Acts 22 is a personal apologetic, a defense for his actions connected to his personal testimony that clears up misunderstandings of what he believes and what he has done and why. And so beginning in verse 3, Paul gives his personal testimony, explaining why he did what he did. But he's not doing it as, as an apology. He's not sort of leading up to saying, I'm sorry. He says, I grew up zealous for the law such that I persecuted followers of the way. He doesn't then say, I'm sorry that I did this, though he is. But he's already apologized. He's already confessed that as sin to the Lord and likely apologized to those he persecuted, those that weren't killed. So the churches, the individuals, the families that he had previously persecuted. So here he is simply explaining his background, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The crowd might see all of it as good. They might not see anything wrong and would applaud all of it. But Paul himself knows which parts are sinful. In fact, in Paul's testimony about himself, we hear similar words from what he wrote to the Philippian church. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And in that letter, Paul goes on to talk about how he considers all of that loss, all of that is rubbish for the sake of the gospel. But here, Paul is emphasizing that he is not just a Jew, but one who had received a top education and was as zealous as anyone, even going so far as persecuting followers of the way. And the high priest and the council can confirm this. Bear in mind that Paul was converted in 35 AD. He's arrested in 57 AD. It is 22 years later. 22 years since he was Saul the persecutor and is now Paul the apostle. I feel like somebody's standing here today talking about something they did back in 1995 and before. Now, some of us sitting here can't believe that 1995 was 22 years ago. <laughs> it seems like just yesterday, right? Others of us in here weren't even born in 1995. There goes one right now. Sorry, Noel. They study the 1990s in history class. The older we get, the harder it is to convince children and teens that we were once kids. We all struggle with the same issues of adolescence, school, friends, peer pressure. There is nothing new under the sun, says Ecclesiastes. There is no temptation that has seized you except what is common to man, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. We have all been there. But here's Paul standing before them as a 50-year-old prisoner of Rome, hated by the Jewish council, but once he was the young superstar of the Sanhedrin. In Jerusalem, there were certainly many who knew and remembered Saul and could say, yep, that's him. And what he said he did is true. That really is what he did. While others knew nothing of Saul who became Paul. And both are asking the same question. What changed you? Paul, what, what changed you? And so Paul gives his testimony that on the way to Damascus to persecute people there, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. And then Paul heard a voice saying, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. 
And notice that the crowd is still tracking with Paul. They are listening attentively to his testimony. They continue to listen as Paul recounts how Ananias, another devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews, came to Paul and miraculously restored his sight. They are still listening to Paul as he recounts what Ananias said. Verse 14, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. They're still listening when he tells about coming back to the temple and while in a trance, the Lord again speaking and saying, quick, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. The crowd is attentively listening to all of his testimony, perhaps wondering, is Paul a prophet? Did he receive these divine messages? They even listened to the testimony that it was Jesus of Nazareth who spoke to Paul in these divine messages. But the tipping point comes in verse 21. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And the crowd goes berserk. Verse 22 says, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. And they began to throw off their cloaks and fling dirt in the air, signs of protest and making a public spectacle. And I imagine the commander is standing right there listening to all this, this calm man speaking these calming words to the crowd. And all of a sudden, the crowd is out of control again. And the commander, again, is primarily concerned with calming the crowd. Not correcting the crowd, but calming the crowd. And there's a measure to which that is rightly a primary concern. In the same way that parents cannot speak to a child in the midst of a tantrum. Either the child's or the parent's tantrum, right? So everyone gets a time out to calm down and then we can talk about it. And so the commander tries to understand, not by addressing the crowd, who is completely unreasonable, but by trying to get answers from Paul. And he assumes that he will need to flog Paul in order to get answers. The wording of verse 24 emphasizes how unjust this is. He, the commander, directed that Paul be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Why are you flogging Paul to find out why they are shouting? Why not ask them why they're shouting? And if you want to ask Paul, why just not just ask him? You don't need to torture him first. The answer of why they're shouting, by the way, is pretty simple. The reason that the people are shouting at me, says Paul, is because they hate Gentiles. Because they think that our God hates Gentiles. And it turns out that our God loves Jews and Gentiles. Rather than trying to kill the Gentiles, it turns out that we are supposed to extend God's loving kindness to the Gentiles. But Paul can't get these words out because everyone is having a nutty again. And in the heat of the moment, and especially the more heat of the moment, the more injustice and wrong words and actions are displayed. Getting everyone calmed down instead of more amped up is so important. And it's grace that gets us there. That's why Christians don't fight, fight fire with fire. As Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
In the midst of this complete injustice, Paul says to the centurion in charge of the flogging, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? The answer, of course, which everyone knows, is no, it's not legal. Roman citizens were protected. They were excluded from such public forms of punishment. The ancient Cicero puts it like this. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. The centurion knew this. The commander knew this. And they both knew they could be in serious trouble. So the commander himself comes to verify with Paul that he is a Roman citizen. Now there's three ways in which you can become a Roman citizen. First, as a reward for service to Rome. Second, by purchasing the right. And third, by being born into a family that possessed the privilege and passed it on to their children. That Paul was born a citizen likely means that Paul's ancestors in Tarsus had acquired citizenship for services rendered to Rome. It was a reward to the family. And this right and privilege had passed on to Paul. And in this way, Paul's citizenship actually supersedes that of the commander. Verse 29 captures the gravity of the situation. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. In strict legal terms, the commander has already broken the law by having Paul bound with chains in the first place. He could try to plead ignorance. I didn't know he was a Roman citizen. Of course, the response is, did you ask him? Next week, we will see the commander's next move to deal with the predicament of legal requirements, but also needing to keep peace and order in Jerusalem with an angry mob that still wants to kill Paul. For now, let's see the ministry of the gospel and the application of this passage to our lives. First, Paul spoke to the people in their own language with inviting words. Is that not what God has done for us? God came to us personally. The God of the universe came to us fully human. Jesus was fully divine, but also fully human, God in the flesh. And so as God came to us, we go to others, speaking to the people in their language with inviting words. And so rather than trying to come up with pithy comebacks to tell people off, we need to develop winsome responses that invite dialogue. Second, Paul spoke to a people who understood themselves to be God's chosen people. But it is God who does the choosing. And so to say that we are the chosen people says more about the chooser than the choosee, right? We are God's elect. Christians are God's elect people. However, we are not chosen so that people should come to us and be like us. Rather, we are chosen in order to go and make disciples. Think about that like the game of tag. When you're chosen, you're it, right? It doesn't mean that you're supposed to stand there and say, ladies and gentlemen, I've been tagged, I'm it. Come, come gather around me. Now you're tagged in order to go and to chase after people. The Jews understood they were the chosen people, 
but they misunderstood, thinking that meant that everyone was supposed to come and be like them. No, we're chosen in order to go. The doctrine of election and predestination places the focus not on us, but on God. And so God's sovereignty and salvation encourages us for evangelism, encourage us in our apologetics, knowing that God can save anyone, anywhere, anytime, using even ones such as us, who will not say it perfect or do it perfectly. We simply get the privilege of going as God's chosen messenger. And then Paul's testimony shows the change from confidence in ourselves to confidence in Christ, who revealed himself to us. We are changed because Christ first came to us. We were confident in ourselves. Or perhaps in our despair, we had no confidence in ourselves or anyone or in anything. And God came to us by the ministry of the gospel accompanied by the Holy Spirit of the living God. And the Holy Spirit gave us new life. We were born again, illuminated to hear the gospel so that we could respond and place faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But it was this regeneration work first by the Holy Spirit that is just as miraculous as Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. We minister the gospel in word and deed as instruments in the Redeemer's hands so that the Holy Spirit may win people to Christ. Our job is simply to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's job is to open the eyes and ears of people's hearts to the gospel of Christ so that they place their faith in Christ alone. And so Paul didn't want followers of Paul. He wants followers of Christ. Just as we don't want followers of ourselves, we want followers of Jesus. And so we bring the gospel to everyone everywhere because we serve the God who is the God of everyone everywhere. There is only one true God. The atoning sacrifice of Christ accomplishes salvation for all God's elect from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And if you look on a map and put Israel in the middle, we right now sitting here are the ends of the earth. Jesus has come to us by the ministry of the gospel. And so it is we take the gospel out everywhere. Then finally, we were God's enemies, and yet God still came to us. Who are your enemies? To whom can you go and minister a gospel of grace? To whom can you go regardless of their earthly citizenship, their earthly standing, their earthly status, and to share the good news that in Christ, we are citizens of heaven. We are reborn and receive a new citizenship. Because of Christ, we are adopted into the family of God and have all the rights and privileges that come with being children of the living God. Overcome evil with good. That's how God overcame us. Introduce grace into broken situations. That's how God healed us. And may the truth set us free. Amen.